wrote, or a, kind of a group effort? Yeah, very good, to go along with this theory. Uh, we have been in a short series talking about revival this summer. And if you looked at the pastor's page this morning, you'll see I'm going to be on sabbatical uh, and gone for the next uh, six weeks, uh, taking some vacation time and sabbatical time. Uh, during that break will be the series when God goes to Starbucks, and uh, Jim and Jason and Lauren will be speaking during that time. And then I'm going to come back, and in August we'll do a couple more series uh, in this series on revival. And it's going to lead into some things in the fall that we're also going to do that tie in, including a special prayer emphasis in the fall, uh, calling people to come together in a corporate way to pray for our nation, our community, and what God is doing. So I hope these uh, messages really kind of encourage your heart and stir us up to pray, and that we'll take that seriously when we come back together in the fall and join in prayer for our land. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 17 through chapter 20 this morning. So I'm just going to touch on a few things in each chapter. We're looking at the life of Jehoshaphat. And let me pray for us as we begin. Father, as we come before you today, we ask that you would do a work in our heart to revive us, to draw us back into a deeper, stronger, closer relationship with you. Where there is sin in our life, Father, we turn from it. We confess that to you, and we ask for your mercy and grace. And we pray that the winds of your Holy Spirit would blow upon your church once again. Lord, we need it. We need to hear from you, and our land needs it. And I pray, Father, that you would stir us up in a good way, according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the book of James, James says that the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. And in that passage, he goes on to say that Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed. Now, that's interesting. He uses Elijah as an example. And in the New Testament, you know, those individuals, as well as we, would look at Elijah and we think, well, certainly Elijah was a, a prophet. He was a man through whom God did great miracles. Of course he heard Elijah pray. But the writer of Scripture is making this point that Elijah was just like us, just a man who humbled himself and was obedient, and he prayed. And the prayer of a righteous man is powerful, not because he's a prophet or a king or whatever his position may be, but the prayer of a righteous man is powerful because God is powerful. And God has chosen to work in response to the prayers of his people. And he calls all of us to come before him humbly and to pray. Well, the man that we're going to look at today, I think the scripture would also say, was a man just like us, even though he was a king. His name is Jehoshaphat. He was the king of Judah from 873 to 848 B.C. He was a good king, but he was not a perfect king. He struggled in areas of his life, just like we may struggle with certain areas in our life and our relationship with God. In some ways, he was like his father, Asa, who we looked at last week, but in other ways, he was different from him. Jehoshaphat will have times when he just shines, when he is so faithful to God, and then he's going to have areas where he just stumbles, and you look at it, and you go, 
Jehoshaphat, why aren't you listening? Why did you do that? But if we're honest about our own life, isn't that true of us too? That there can be areas where we uh, do it right, we listen to the Lord, we are obedient, we respond to Him, and then there are areas in our life where God must look at us and say, why won't you listen? Why won't you listen? And so here we're going to look at a man who really is a good example for us. Jehoshaphat was a man of prayer, and in his days Judah experienced a great revival. And his life is recorded in these four chapters. That's why we're going to touch on it. So what can we learn from Jehoshaphat's life? I'm going to draw out three points today for us to think about. Number one, we see the importance of teaching the Word of God. Teach the Word of God. And we see that in chapter 17. It says, Jehoshaphat, his son, succeeded him as king and strengthened himself against Israel. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah. He put garrisons in Judah and in the towns of Ephraim that his father Asa had captured. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early days he walked in the ways his father David had followed. He did not consult the Baals but sought the God of his father, and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. And the Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat, so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord, and furthermore he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. I'll pause there. Here you get a description of Judah who I mean of Jehoshaphat, who is a good king. He's following his father Asa, and he would rule over Judah for 25 years. From the chronology that's given here in the Scripture, it appears that he was a co-regent with his father for the first three years. And that was probably because of Asa's illness. Asa was struck with this disease in the 39th year of his reign, and then he died in the 41st year. And so there was overlap between these two. And during that time, Jehoshaphat built up the fortified cities. He stationed troops there. He continued to remove the high places, the Asherah poles and the Baals, where these idols were worshipped. Now, the word Baal means master or lord. And in those days, it seems that every field had a Baal. Every plot of land had an idol that was to be worshipped in order to get good crops or to have the land produce like you would like. When I read that, it reminds me of places that I've seen in Asia, for example, where there are idols by every village, every field, every plot of land where there has to be some gift or offering that's made because you want to appease the spirits and hopefully that'll mean that you'll get a good crop. They don't know that there is one true God who is sovereign over all and that these idols are really demonic spirits that they are worshiping. So what did Jehoshaphat do? I mean, this is a very difficult thing to try and root out from among the people. Well, Jehoshaphat put together a teaching team. We see that in verse 7. In the third year of his reign, now that's significant, that, that means... I think, that his father Asa had now died. So the very first thing that Jehoshaphat did in the third year of his reign, as he is now independent, he sent his officials, Ben-Hail, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathanael, 
and Micaiah to teach in the towns of Judah. Along with them were these Levites and then also two priests that went out. And in verse 9, we see they taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. And they went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. How did Jehoshaphat address this idolatry? He taught the word of God. And he put together this team to go out and to preach that word throughout Judah, all over, from village to village. Now, there's something very significant here. I mean, the result of that time was that the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms surrounding Judah. It wasn't just his own people that grew. God did something. And this fear of God fell on the surrounding nations, and God gave them peace during this time. As I said, there's something very important here. How do we deal with idolatry? How do we deal with sin? How do we deal with superstitious beliefs? We teach people the Word of God, and we let that Word do its work. It's interesting, in my reading on revival, as we talk about this subject and join these things together, the historical revivals with the biblical revivals, One of the things that I've seen is that the longest-lasting revivals are based on the Word of God. It is the Word of God that cuts through the emotionalism that can be part of a revival, where people get stirred up or their emotional responses and they make decisions, but if they are not taught the Scripture, if there's not that hard work of discipleship, of obedience that follows it, those revivals are short-lasting. It's the Word of God. It's our commitment to that and our obedience to that that lasts and that bears fruit over a season. And one of the examples of that is the Second Great Awakening in America. It began in the year 1792, and it would last into the 1840s. Now, that's a long period of time. Henry Blackaby wrote that this awakening was different from the First Great Awakening. This awakening was pastor-led, it was word-centered, and it was long-lived. And rather than outside evangelists coming in like Whitfield in the First Great Awakening, God worked through pastors in their congregations. They preached from God's Word with a focus on God's sovereignty and the necessity of redemption. The Holy Spirit brought deep conviction of sin and people surrender their lives to Christ. They turned from their sin. They confessed it to God and they were changed by His Word. And as a result, these revivals were long-lasting, covering two to three decades. Let me give you one example of that. At Yale, a revival there was led by Timothy Dwight. He was a pastor. And he served as the president of Yale from 1795 to 1817. Timothy Dwight's mother was Mary Edwards, the daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And so his grandfather was Jonathan Edwards, and his great-grandfather was Solomon Stoddard, who was also a great preacher in New England. Quite a godly heritage and legacy that he had. And when he came to Yale as president, the college was in a most ungodly state. Only about 10% 
of the 125 students there would take the name of Christ in public. They had become so enthralled with French philosophy and what was being taught at that time that they had turned away from Christ. And they had bought kind of this European philosophy that was being taught. They listened to the critiques of religion by Voltaire and Rousseau and others, and they had adopted this. This is the same time period in which Thomas Jefferson was president, and you remember from history perhaps that he had created his own New Testament where he cut out of the Bible all the miraculous parts and just kind of focused on what he thought was the historical Jesus. But he didn't have a true faith in Jesus Christ as Redeemer and Lord and Savior. He just wanted to focus on Jesus because he thought he was a good moral teacher. So that's the philosophy that's pervading things. And here comes Timothy Dwight. He's now the pastor and president of Yale. And what did he do? He chose to teach the Scriptures. And he asked the students this question. He said, are the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament the Word of God? Are they the Word of God? You bring me your objections. You bring your questions. We're going to have this out, and we're going to talk about this in chapel. And he preached on that subject for the next six months. He heard their questions and arguments, and then he meticulously and ruthlessly demolished their case, and he constructed a well-reasoned defense of the Bible's authority and its accuracy. And it wasn't just an intellectual argument. Timothy Dwight cared about his students. One of his students, Lyman Beecher, said this about him, that his preaching was a continual course of education and a continual feast. And he said about his person that he was of noble form and he had one of the sweetest smiles that you ever saw. He said, oh, how I loved him. He was universally revered and loved. I like that blend of solid biblical scholarship combining the mind and the heart. Because both are necessary. And in that role as a president, I mean, they had not heard teaching like his with power and conviction. And they were moved by it, but they also heard this man who loved them, who was winsome and cared about them. And they were drawn to that as well. In 1802, one-third of the student body was converted. 75 out of 230 students. And in the next four years, 69 graduates went on into ministry where only 13 had in the years before the revival. God did a work at Yale, and that work spilled over into the congregations all across New England and the East Coast. And it was all based on the Word of God. Teach the Scriptures. A second lesson we see here from Jehoshaphat's life is that we are to avoid compromising entanglements. In chapter 18 we read about one of the saddest chapters in Jehoshaphat's life, his alliance with Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Let me read just a little bit for us in chapter 18. It said, Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, 
and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Now, you need a little bit of context on this. Okay, Ahab, northern king, he is the son of a man named Omri. The house of Omri was one of the most wicked in Israel's history, and Ahab was worse than his father. And Ahab worshipped the Baals, and he led Israel into idol worship. He married Jezebel, who was one of the most wicked women in the Bible. And they had a daughter named Athaliah. And it is this daughter, Athaliah, that Jehoshaphat gives his son in marriage, and they create this alliance where they are united in marriage. A little bit later in Israel's history, Athaliah is going to try and wipe out the whole line of David, the line of the kings, unless the line of the Messiah. She is a wicked woman, and all of it begins with this terrible decision to join in this alliance with the ungodly king of Israel. Some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and urged him to attack Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, the king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied that I am as you are and my people are as your people. We will join you in the war. But Jehoshaphat said also to the king of Israel, First, let's seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, his men, and he asked them, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat wasn't convinced, and he asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? of whom we can inquire of. You know, so here's this king of Israel. He's got his men, these prophets of Baal, who are kind of a mixture of, you know, saying they worship God when they really don't. And Jehoshaphat recognizes this, and so he asks for a prophet of the Lord to come. And Ahab says, well, there is one guy, but he never says anything good about me, and I don't like him. (laughs) His name's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And so they call him in, and uh, verse 8, the king of Israel calls in one of his officials, and he says, bring Micaiah, the son of Imlah, at once. And they were dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sitting on their thrones at the threshold. And then uh, they brought Micaiah in, and Zedekiah says to him, You know, this is what the Lord says. With these uh, horns, you're going to gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were saying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into your hand. Now the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man the other prophets are predicting success for the king, let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. I can tell him only what my God says says. So when he arrives, the king asks him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And Micaiah says, attack and be victorious, he answered, for they'll be given into your hand. And the king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Even he could hear the sarcasm in what he was saying. 
And Micaiah answered and he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. So Micaiah comes, he prophesies death for Ahab and defeat for Israel. And yet in spite of that, Jehoshaphat will go into battle with Ahab and it will almost cost him his life. Ahab says, I tell you what, Jehoshaphat, when we go into battle, you go in your royal robes and your chariot and I'm just going to dress kind of like the ordinary guys and I'm going to mingle among the men and, you know, we'll, we'll go into battle that way and I'll keep an eye on things. When the Arameans saw Jehoshaphat in his royal robes, they chased his chariot. They thought he was the king of Israel because the orders had been given to only attack the king of Israel. And when those who were chasing him realized that he wasn't the king of Israel, they turned from him. God protected Jehoshaphat. And then he tells us that in the midst of that battle, there was an archer who just kind of, you know, late in the day maybe drew his bow at random and fired off an arrow, and that arrow found its mark in a chink in the armor in Ahab, and he was wounded in battle. He would be taken from the battlefield, but he would die because of the wound that he had. And Israel was like that sheep without a shepherd. After the battle... God sent a prophet, Yehu, to confront Jehoshaphat. We read about it in chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. When Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his palace in Jerusalem, Yehu the seer, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to the king, Now wait, he's the son of Hanani. Remember that name if you were here last week? Hanani was the prophet who had confronted Jehoshaphat's father, Asaph and said, what are you doing? Hanani brought that word of God to his father. And Asa got angry at him, remember? And he didn't like what Hanani said, and he threw him in prison. He would not listen to the word of God. So what does Jehoshaphat do? Here comes this word. And Yehu says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of God is upon you. You know, the Scripture in the New Testament does call us to love our enemies. That's a good thing. But it also warns us against making any kind of entangling alliances with them. And that's what Jehoshaphat had done. He had joined with this wicked king. He said, because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. What did Jehoshaphat do? To his credit, Jehoshaphat seems to have listened and repented. We see in the next chapter, in 19, like in verse 4, he went out among the people and he turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. A little later down in 19, in verses 6 to 9, he's going to appoint judges and he urges them to judge carefully because they are serving the Lord to judge carefully without partiality. And then in verse 11, he is going to instruct them to act with courage and say, may the Lord be with you. There's a warning here. Don't be unequally yoked. Bad things come from those kind of situations. It's a warning the New Testament repeats when it comes to marriage 
to not be unequally yoked, a believer with an unbeliever, because you cannot share in the most important area of your life. It's a warning that would apply to business ventures. And don't be unequally yoked in a business venture or even in friendships. And we are to build relationships with those who don't know Jesus so that they might come to know him. But if you are being drawn into friendships that are hurting your testimony or leading you astray from Christ and they have caused you to turn away from Jesus, then it's time to repent and to turn and to put yourself in a situation with friends who can help you to grow in your relationship with Christ. It is a serious thing that the Scripture is talking about here. For us as believers, we're to give our loyalty to Christ. We're to walk with Him in obedience and turn from sin. And He wants us to be a witness in this world, but He doesn't want us to enter into relationships that are going to compromise our witness for Christ. The third thing we can learn from Jehoshaphat is the importance that we humble ourselves and pray. We humble ourselves and pray. In the biggest challenge of his life in chapter 20, Jehoshaphat was a model of humility and prayer. There is a vast army that comes up against him made up of Moabites, Ammonites, and Munites. Munites were from Mount Seir in the region of Moab. And they came up to attack Judah. And by the time Jehoshaphat hears about this vast army that's coming against him, again, just swarms of enemy troops that are coming against them, they're only about a day's march away. They are in a place called En Gedi on the western side of the Dead Sea. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? He called the people to fast and pray. He summoned this assembly, brought them together from every town as the word went out. And they came together and Jehoshaphat led them in prayer. And let me read for you his prayer that's found in chapter 20, verses 6 to 12. He said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came out from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. And see how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And the people stood there in prayer before the Lord. In the spirit of 2 Chronicles 7.14, he asked for God's help. And he admits their weakness. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Well, to shorten the story, God heard their prayer and he acted in a powerful way. Through a Levite named Jehaziel, he will say to Jehoshaphat and the people, don't be afraid. The battle is not yours, but God's. 
you will not have to fight in this battle. The next day, Jehoshaphat gathers the people. He encourages them from the Lord and he instructs them uh, to have the choir lead the army out as they march against this approaching army. When they come to the top of a hill, they look out and what God had done was as the choir began to lead the people in praise, these enemy armies begin to fight against one another. The Lord set ambushes, and these armies were fighting one another so that they destroyed themselves and were defeated. Jehoshaphat's army did not have to fight in this battle, and it took them three days to gather up the plunder. They called the Valley Barakah, the Valley of Praise, and the fear of the Lord fell upon Judah's enemies once again. The summary of Jehoshaphat's life is good. It is there in verse 32, where it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a good king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then later, verse 35, the king of Judah once again made an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who was guilty of wickedness. He agreed with him to construct a fleet of trading ships, got into a business partnership here, and after these were built, Eleazar prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have made an alliance with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to set sail to trade. Why? Jehoshaphat, why? You were doing so well. You had seen God work, but this was an area that he struggled with. Just like we may struggle with worry in our life or with pride or with anger or with our thought life, Jehoshaphat was a man just like us. And when he walked with God and was obedient, when he humbled himself and prayed, God did great things. When he entered into these ventures on his own, thinking he could take care of things and do it, it ended in trouble. We can learn from that and see the importance in our own life that we are obedient to God in all things. Now let me go back to the second great awakening and I'm going to end with an example here. The second great awakening not only affected the eastern United States, but it also had a profound effect on the western frontier. One of the places that we read about was a place called Logan County, Kentucky. And there was a pastor there named James McGreedy who asked his church members to pray for revival. They prayed for over a year, half hour at sunset on Saturday, half hour Sunday morning at sunrise, and then on every third Sunday of the month, they'd gather together for a longer time of prayer. The West was characterized by drunkenness, fighting, all sorts of immorality reigned. And what could they do, they felt, but pray and ask God to do a work? Well, as they prayed, over time, God began to stir among the people, and there were revivals that began to occur in small churches. And it came together, those scattered floods merged into a torrent in August of 1801. And there was a camp meeting that was held in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Between 10,000 to 25,000 frontier people gathered to hear the gospel. And they rejoiced in that atmosphere. And God began to stir their hearts. Uh, West, uh, Washington College president George Baxter visited Kentucky after the revival. 
and he noted dramatic changes in behavior. Remarkably, he said he heard not a word of swearing from the rough and wild frontiersmen. Instead, a sense of religious awe pervaded Kentucky. Henry Blackaby wrote that the presence of a holy God so gripped the people that they experienced at times physical anguish, times when they would fall before the Lord with groans or with cries in their heart for confessing their sins. They prayed fervently for forgiveness and salvation, and they were joyously converted. Lives and communities were so transformed in morals that observers noticed the difference in their towns. College campuses were reclaimed from religious infidelity to once again prepare missionaries and ministers for the gospel. Churches were revived and were flooded with new converts. In those years leading up to 1850, church membership in the United States doubled. By 1850, 70% of Americans were either Baptist or Methodist, as those denominations in particular sent out their uh, pastors who were kind of those uh, riders on horseback that went out and established churches and communities all across the frontier. By 1840, Alexander Tocqueville noted that no country in the whole world exists in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. But Tocqueville also said about America at that time, he said, America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. The Second Great Awakening was a remarkable movement of God's Spirit. And if we want to see God move in our nation once again, then it needs to begin with us, with God's people. That we would be growing in our knowledge of God's Word, that we would turn from sin and any compromising relationships, and that we would humble ourselves and pray and seek His face. Let's pray. God, there is so much that we can learn from Your Word and from Scripture. And it begins with humbling ourselves before You. Being a people who love Your Word and who listen to it and take it to heart. Who are obedient in the things that You ask and come before You in prayer just like Jehoshaphat did. Who look at our land, who look at the challenges that we face and we say, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon You. And You are a sovereign God who rules over nations. And at any moment, You can send Your Spirit to revive your church or to bring a great awakening across the nation. And Lord, I pray that even as we are talking about it in our church, you would be working in churches all across America to seek your face, to turn from their sin, to humble themselves and pray. We ask it for your sake, for the glory of your name, and that many might come into the kingdom. Amen.